the Cumberland Podcast. My name is Chris Fleming. I am the Adult Ministry Coordinator for the Discipleship Ministry Team of the Ministry Council of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the lectionary text for February the 24th, 2019. And those texts include Genesis chapter 45, verses 3 through 11 and verse 15, Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11, and then verses 39 and 40, and then 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 35 through 38, and then verses 42 through 50, and then the gospel passage is Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. Uh, now, before we get into this, most of the lectionary texts fit together real well for this week, and I mean almost perfectly, but the epistle passage throws everything out of whack. So uh, the theme of the week for three out of the four passages is forgiveness or seeking revenge or uh, these types of themes, or at least how to live in the world in an evil world when people are mistreating you. And then how do you how do you respond with forgiveness or, or with vengeance? Uh, so we'll start with the Old Testament lesson, which I believe is probably one of the greatest stories in all of Scripture. If you're going to preach this passage, it's probably a must to at least give an overview of the beginning of the story of Joseph and what events led to this reunion with his brothers. That story you can find in the beginning of it in Genesis chapter 37. Uh, of course, Joseph maybe has a little immaturity and pride on his side in telling his brothers about his dreams, that they'll bow down to him. And, of course, his brothers get mad and they take care of him. Really, the story almost mimics the Cain and Abel story. It's more fully expanded. But, of course, in that story, the older brother kills the younger brother because the younger brother had found favor with God. And so that's what's happening here. The younger brother is uh, being uplifted and the older brother's decide that that's not good for them. So if you're going to preach that, then Genesis chapter 37 verse 11 is the key verse for that context. After Joseph tells his brothers of the dream, it says his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So you can continue the story of the staged murder and how Joseph instead was sold to traveling merchants and ended up in Egypt and so on. Uh, you could also bring out the fact that Joseph is a type of Christ. His life mimics that of Christ in many ways in that he stood by his integrity because he understood himself as a servant of God. He gave up his freedom oftentimes because of his faithfulness. He became an instrument of earthly salvation to the people of the world. Uh, but we do have to understand that uh, after that first event of Joseph's brothers throwing him or selling him to the traveling merchants, that Joseph freely gave up his, his own desires in order to follow God. So... Uh, he didn't passively accept the situation he found himself in, but he conducted himself in such a way that he always tried to better himself before God, right? He always did what was right. And what we find is God continually bringing him up out of those situations. So in your sermon, if you want to compare the uh, qualities of Joseph uh, and Christ, you'll want to start in verses 4 through 8. So his brothers come to Joseph. They don't know that he is Joseph. And so he explains it and reveals himself. He said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. 
Further in Genesis, after the death of Jacob, Joseph's brothers worry about taking him. Joseph taking revenge on them, so they go to Joseph, and his response is found in Genesis chapter fifty. It says Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him, and said, "We are here as your slaves." But Joseph said to them, "Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good." in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and for your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. So this somewhat parallels the proclamations found in Acts chapter 2, as Peter proclaims in his sermon. He said, You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now, there may be some thinking that God did not plan to have Jesus killed, or that God needed a blood sacrifice or whatnot, but it does seem that Peter goes out of his way to make sure that Jews knew that anything that happened to Christ was according to a definite plan, right? So it was the foreknowledge and plan of God that it happened. And in the same way, Joseph seems to interpret his tragedies in life through the lens of being a submitted servant of God to be used any way God sees fit. So you could bring in the passage of Paul and his understanding of being clay in the hands of a potter if you want to. The point to drive home is that God is providential and that being a servant of God means submission to God. And again, people may object, but it was a choice, at least for Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane when he willingly chose to follow through what he believed to be God's will. When he says, My Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I will, but what you will be done. And I don't think this is moralism, in that we choose to live by faith and allow God to do his will in our life. We're not called to make it hard on ourselves at all. Uh, lots of Christians think that they have to be martyrs. Uh, but one may, through prayer and the strength of the Holy Spirit, uh, be put in situations, and we have to make a choice as to how we'll react. Joseph was an ordinary person, but with the strength of God, uh, he was able to submit to God, and he was taken on an incredible journey which led to his ultimate benefit, but it also led to the saving of many human lives uh, through that uh, famine. And so there is a theme of providence and submission, and this is a tough one, but it is what it is. And the other text can reinforce this theme, and we'll talk about that in a moment. The other theme for this passage is revenge or forgiveness, right? Forgiveness from Joseph does not flow from simply doing the right thing. Again, it's not moralism. Joseph understood that he became greater because of God's providence and work in his life. God had formed Joseph into a person that became forgiving because God was a forgiving God. God used Joseph to save his family and to save many people. God showed love and concern for all people through Joseph, even to Joseph in his times of trials and temptations. Forgiveness, then, is the overflow from the work that God had done in Joseph's heart. You know, what would revenge accomplish? In spite of not getting revenge on everyone who ever wronged Joseph, God continued to use Joseph, and Joseph climbed higher and higher in worldly terms. He became essentially the most powerful person in the world. Revenge kills Forgiveness creates life and opportunities, and that preaches well. So that brings us now to the psalm, which is Psalm 37. 
Do not fret because of the wicked. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, so you will live in the land and enjoy security. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will make your vindication shine like the light and just in the justice of your cause like the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently on him. Do not fret over those who prosper in their way, over those who carry out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For the wicked shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look diligently for their place, they will not be there. The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Now you're probably able to see very quickly how this psalm supports that Old Testament reading. If you're preaching this on its own, then I would tell you to lift up a time in history or even in your own personal life when you've experienced an evil happening to you. As a minister, I've counseled many people for various reasons, and I've observed that people more often than not uh, come to me because they're having feelings of, of revenge or feelings of being used by evil people, and they don't know how to handle it. Our world is full of evil, and oftentimes we are the ones who suffer. So how can we live in light of that disappointment and this hurt? Uh, we're given an outline in this psalm, six ways of living in an evil world without succumbing to vengeance and losing our souls to anger. Uh, first, it says, do not fret or be envious of those people. Second, trust in the Lord and do good. Third, take delight in the Lord. Fourth, commit your way to the Lord. Five, be still before the Lord. And then six, refrain from anger and give up wrath. Unforgiveness and thoughts of vengeance kills our spirituality and can ultimately lead us further from the experience of God's grace. However, through intentional practices of these six ways that are listed in the psalm, we can see how God's grace can redeem our hurts and we can live by faith knowing that God will care for us. Oftentimes when I get angry, I can rehearse it, man. I think of all the things that I'm going to say to that person who did me wrong. I can even think and dream about how I'm going to even the score. And the more I think about it, the more I get worked up, worked up. It's the exact opposite of what it says to do in this psalm. By reversing that, practicing it, instead practicing grace, then I can return to the source of blessing that is God's grace. And I can deal with the, deal with the situation around me in a, in a spiritual and affirming way. And now I'm going to switch to the epistle passage in 1 Corinthians. Uh, again, this passage is not like any of the other ones. It's more of a good warm-up for Ash Wednesday that's coming up here in a couple weeks. I don't want to comment on this passage too much, except to say that I think it's a true vision of life, like real life, what we're going to experience when, when Christ returns or when we pass away. This is the text I most often use for a funeral, because death is something that is going to happen to every single one of us. All right, it's happened to every single person who's lived, minus a very few select people. Uh, and at this point in history, it should never come as a shock that you get a phone call that somebody's passed away, ever. It happens every single day. But I've noticed that no matter how many times uh, you've experienced someone dying in your life, it always comes as a shock when you hear that phone call that says so-and-so has died. Even more so when it's someone close to you. And you hear people say things like, well, death is natural. You are born and you die. And I have a theory about this. And my theory is that death is not natural. 
In fact, I believe that death is the most unnatural thing that we humans uh, will ever go through. And so my theory is grounded in the creation story. We were created with perfect bodies, with perfect wills, and we were created to live forever, eternally in fellowship with God. And so I believe that this is why we're still shocked when we receive the news of, of someone dying and why it's so difficult as we begin getting older and our bodies betray us so we were not meant for this. We were meant for so much more. And so if you preach this, then preach it as a vision of what Christ has accomplished. He has transformed the world, and it's already begun the process of making the wrongs right and healing all of creation. This text also serves to explain why we never feel quite at home in this world. Our bodies simply will not make us comfortable because in its present state, it's only a mere imitation of what we're going uh, to be when this earth is consummated and, and Christ uh, redeems completely this world. When people die and our bodies start going bad on us, we're told by the, or if we're told by the doctor we have a debilitating illness, it becomes an echo of a home that we've never been. Our health and our bodies are constant reminders that this earthly life isn't reality, but we belong to a different reality where death has been swallowed up. So now on to the gospel passage. Uh, and a return to how we deal with our enemies and living in a way of forgiveness. Again, I counsel a lot of people, and I've counseled a lot of people that um, have been abused. So be careful on these passages not to give abuse the upper hand. But at the same time, there is a certain reaction, and that is a resistance, a nonviolent resistance, if you will, that doesn't turn it, you into a monster like the person you're resisting. So far too often, I, I never believed this until I became a minister, Far too often, these verses have been used to condone abuse, and I don't think that that is right. So, whether this is completely true or not, I think it is. The three examples that Jesus gives about resistance, first is the slapping of the right cheek, right? Um, basically, this was a backhand. Uh, a backhand wasn't necessarily meant to inflict pain as much as it was psychological damage, that somebody wasn't worthy of being hit, they were backhanded. All right, so... To preserve one's honor, uh, it's crucial that when a master hits a slave, everything is done perfectly. The slave obediently stands facing the master, and then the, the backhand comes across the cheek. Now imagine if your overlord has just slapped you on the right cheek, and without saying a word, you turn your head and expose your left cheek. It appears that you are becoming doubly subservient, doubly ex accepting your master's authority over you, but actually you're rendering your master powerless because you can't backhand that cheek anymore. Turning your head hides your right cheek and presents your left cheek, but the angle of your head will be such that the master uh, that the master can see but cannot strike your left cheek with the back of his right hand. And so that's one way of saying, you can't do this to me again. And then when he talks about someone being sued, peasants didn't sue one another, but this was about the abuse of the poor since peasants quite literally owned only the clothes on their backs, being sued for your coat was actually being sued for the only thing you owned, except your underclothes, right? So being seen in underwear is not only shameful for you, it's shameful for the person who would take that from you. And so when Christ says, give them your cloak as well, it's saying, look at how evil this person is. I can't even have my underwear. And then, of course, if you're forced to go a mile, uh, Roman soldiers were allowed to uh, make civilians carry their packs, but only for a certain amount of, amount of time or a certain amount of length, and that was a mile. Um, so if a soldier was to take advantage of you and say, hey, go one mile, 
Uh, go that second mile. Publicly expose the unjust hardship of being forced to go that one mile. Uh, but you do so in a way that doesn't cooperate with uh, that abuse, but you also open up that Roman soldier to ridicule. I don't know if those are true, but they sound good. And my preacher grandfather always said, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. But ultimately, this passage is simply bringing to light whether you have experienced the compassion of God in your own life, right? Again, speaking of someone, speaking of someone who has counseled many people, kids in particular, they're quick to turn violent, right? So generally speaking, a kid will come to me and they'll say that, you know, well, I've had some problems on the playground. Let's say uh, this person yells and fights and tries to hit me and so on. Uh, and so I ask them, okay, do you think it's okay to yell and scream and hit people? And of course they say, no, that's not right. I said, do you think that screaming and hitting someone or yelling at someone will fix a problem? Of course they say, no, it just makes me more angry. So, okay. So we've established that yelling, screaming, hitting is not good, and it's not going to solve the problem, to which they always agree. So then I ask them, well, did you yell and fight back? Of course they did. Why? Because they're not going to take that from somebody else. They get so angry, they've got to retaliate. And so then I explain to them, so then you've become a bad person too. You yell, you scream, you hit. That person has made you bad. Of course they say, no, I'm not the bad person. And I said, if screaming and yelling is bad, if hitting somebody is bad, and it doesn't fix anything, but you do it, then that person has the power over to make you just as bad as them. And what's worse, it escalates the hate. And so Jesus is all about resisting evil, but not becoming evil. That's the important thing to know about that passage. Also, this text lends itself to a discussion on judging and discipline. <laughs> and this is a big one in our culture. There's a constant fight about acceptance without judgment on a variety of issues. And while scripture is not a moral document, it does contain moral teaching. And there are some things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And let's say, for instance, you have a child who just refuses to grow up. Let's say there's a failure to launch issue. They sit in the basement of your house all day long. They play video games. They're not working. They're not contributing to the life of the family or community or anything. It is our duty and our honor to discipline a child and to judge that action of the child. If you don't, or if I don't, then I'm contributing to making this child's life worse later, also society worse off, and my family's life, or your family's life worse off. There is a judgment to be made and a discipline to be applied, or you're not helping out anything. All you're doing is taking away from everything. Here's the thing, if it's my child, I love that child, and the judgment of his actions are done in love. Be merciful as God is merciful, is what the text says. I fully expect God to discipline me when I'm in error because I want to be changed. I want to become more like Christ. I don't want to be left in my sin. It hurts, but in love, God wants my best. And so he disciplines me. He judges my actions. He sets me on the right path. And I've also come to, to the knowledge, personally, that ignoring a problem leads to bigger problems. But the key is to have a heart of love for a person when judging, and judging with the heart of God. For in the same manner you judge, it will be judged to you. So verse 37, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. Essentially, the scripture is asking what type of person do you want to be? One who judges without the love of a person? One who is hypercritical? One who doesn't understand grace? Or will you be humble and acknowledge that you too will one day be judged by God? 
we say every Sunday in most churches, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. So as you get ready to preach this week, uh, that's just an overview of the passages. Uh, I'll be praying for our churches that we can proclaim the grace of God with power and love. So let us pray. Gracious God, uh, you have given us the message of reconciliation. Help us to be the ambassadors you want us to be. Uh, righteous, write your appeal is on our hearts and let our hearts be open to all the people that we come in contact to this week. As we prepare, I pray that you would give all of our preachers and Christian educators uh, a deep love for the people which they'll be ministering to. Give them a great power that comes from your spirit and help it overflow from their hearts into the minds of those we reach. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.